at a difficult text, Genesis 38. This week we're in Genesis 39. Um, it's still a difficult text to look at, um, but certainly not at the level that we saw last week. Um, but you remember what we said of the contrast. We, we purposely are to see a connection between, between the two stories. So last week we saw a man uh, or several men take uh, advantage of a woman uh, sexually. Here we see a woman try to take advantage of a man sexually. Um, and we are uh, expected to, to see those, those parallels. Um, but what we need to do uh, right off the bat is to see that this text is not about sexual temptation. It has it in it. It is a subplot, if you will. Uh, and and we, we simplify the text when we say, look, hey, men, run away from sexual temptation. No, that's good. Do that. But it's more than that, okay? And we need to see it as more than that. Uh, the text tells us what the primary purpose of this passage is. Four times we are given at the beginning and the end, serves as a type of inclusio, what the writer wants us to get, okay? Here it is. Um, um, Don, it, it may, oh no, we got it. So in verse two, it says, the Lord was with Joseph. He became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. Next verse, his master saw the Lord was with him. And the Lord caused all he did to succeed in his hands. What is the commonality? The Lord was with Joseph, okay? So the Lord is with Joseph in his slavery. You get to the end of the chapter, what do you find? The Lord is with Joseph in his imprisonment. The Lord was with Joseph and showed his steadfast love. In verse 21, verse 23, keepers of the prison pay no attention to anything. It was Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. What is the main point of this chapter? The main point of the chapter, really, of the story of Joseph is that you cannot judge God's faithfulness to Joseph simply by his suffering. That's a really practical point we've got to learn uh, today, is we often judge God's faithfulness and love in moments of difficulty, and despair, and suffering. You can't do that. What we see is God is setting up things for Joseph and through Joseph that will mean the deliverance of his people. Joseph doesn't see it here. What we're, what we're at in this part of the story we've talked about is Joseph in exile. Remember that it starts out, he exalts himself. Hey, I'm going to be in charge of y'all. And he goes into the pit, he, exile. He goes into Egypt through slavery, exile. And now he's going to go into the pit of prison, exile. Here we see Joseph at his lowest. And what is the writer telling us? Don't forget God is still with him. Doesn't look like it. Doesn't see possible. Look contradictory. God is still with him. Just keep reading, dear reader, and you'll see exactly what God is doing. Well, let's pick up here verses 1 to 6. Joseph being blessed in Egypt, verse 1. Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. See the language of exile. We've talked about that in some detail. Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, introduced him at the end of chapter 37. The captain of the guard... Uh, an Egyptian had brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph. He became a successful man. He was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but ate the food 
that he ate. A couple things here, we, we gotta move quickly. Um, the narrator's gonna catch us up with where we left off, right? So you can take the end of chapter 37, begin at chapter 39, the story flows. Chapter 38 was an interruption, but a purposeful one. We need to see 38 and 39 combined as, as we will see. Um, now, we talked about Potiphar. It's difficult to know exactly what he did, but the language of a captain of the guard is a position of prominence in Pharaoh's kingdom. The chief baker, for example, has the same title, right? He's the captain of the bakers, I guess, if, if you want to put it that way. Um, but here we are to sympathize with our protagonist. He is in exile. He is in slavery. Yet, despite that, the Lord is with him. So much so that he becomes a successful man. Notice what the narrator wants you to see. Joseph was successful not because of his education, because of his intuition, or because uh, of his charisma. He was successful because of God's grace. God is blessing him, right? We need to remember this. God may use charisma. God may use our education. God may use this and that. But it's ultimately God is the one that brings about such success. And that is repeated in verse three, as we've already seen, God is with him. And yet now we see the Egyptian slave master notices it. Remember what God said in his covenant with Abraham, the nations will be blessed through Israel. God will bless Israel and through that blessing, the nations will be blessed. So here you have God blessing a descendant of Abraham who now is uh, through this descendant of Abraham, Potiphar and his household are being blessed. In fact, what we get is, is in verse four, he keeps elevating Joseph to the point that he is basically second in command. Now, does that sound familiar? This is what's going to happen to Joseph at the end of the story when Pharaoh makes him second in command. Okay? Pharaoh's going to see in Joseph what Potiphar sees in Joseph. And so he is elevated. And um, um, now remember, he is being exiled here, he is being exalted, still in slavery, but he's being exalted among the, the domestic slaves. Um, my father-in-law said years ago, I've always remembered this, it's one of the few wise things he ever said, um, is, is he, he, he's worked in factory for years, right? He's retired from factory and all that. And a lot, lot of our family's been in factory, known a lot of people in factory. And he was talking about how uh, his son, who is now way up in the factory life, I mean, just doing excellent work, really proud of, of, of him, that uh, when they came back to Kentucky, he started at the very bottom of a factory, and in no time, he was supervisor. And a lot of people are asking, well, how did Bill do that? And my father-in-law says, look, I've worked in factories for a long time, and in no time, we can tell who is gifted with that job. Like my father is not gifted with that sort of work. My father has reached the pinnacle of what he can do as mechanic. Why? He, he is unqualified to sit at a desk. My dad will tell you, they've offered me the job. And I told them, you give it to me, I'm firing everybody underneath me. Right? You don't want to hire dad for that job. Right? But my brother-in-law is very gifted with that. He's very organized. He's a good administrator. He's a good supervisor. He is patient and kind, but firm and clear. He's just very gifted. He's just worked his way up. Joseph seems to have some of those uh, uh, characteristics. And Potiphar sees this, and rightly so. Potiphar says, I can trust you with a little, right? Uh, as Jesus would say, I will trust you with a lot. He's described in verse 4 as uh, an overseer. This is the position of a steward. He's over all of Potiphar's estate. So much so, Potiphar doesn't even keep track of it anymore. I mean, that's trust. That's trust. Some of us wouldn't do that with our own spouse, right? 
Now, that's trust. Uh, I mean, we wouldn't do it with our in-laws, our parents, our kids, right? He's doing it with this slave. Uh, but once again, the writer wants us to see God is blessing him. That's why in verse 5, you see the repetition, all that Potiphar had twice, repetition for emphasis, is now under his control. Um, so, um, yeah, we'll, we'll skip all that. Um, uh, now, notice at, at there at verse 6, particularly the end of verse 6, um, right? He, he left all he had in Joseph's charge. Because of him, he had no concern about anything food he ate. Here it is. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Now, uh, I was just joking about this uh, earlier about the difference between Peyton Manning and Tom Brady. My beef with Tom Brady is I don't think one man should be that lucky, right? I mean, I mean like before Tom Brady, I think only one football team in their history had won five Super Bowls. Tom Brady comes and he wins five Super Bowls. I mean, that's, that's not fair, right? I mean, it's just, and then he goes off, marries a, a, a supermodel, has all the money in the world, and he can cheat and not be held accountable, right? No one should have that sort of luck in life. And you look at that, and the envy, and you're like, nah, not my kind of guy, painting Manny all the way, right? That's, that's the way my mind works. Well, Joseph is almost like that, right? I mean, everything he touches is turning to gold. He's even attractive. He's a handsome guy, ladies. Broad shoulders. Long, flowing blonde hair, big baby blue eyes, right? He, 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 he is smooth. He is confident, ladies. He is Fabio in an Egyptian robe, right? That, that is Joseph, and it just doesn't seem fair. Now, what we're supposed to see here, this is transitionary. We're supposed to say, yeah, Joseph's a pretty fortunate guy, right? He's got, he's, everything's just going his way. But if you've been following with us in Genesis, you hear that he is attractive. You're thinking, oh, no. Oh, no, that's not good. Because the word translated handsome here is the word beautiful. And we've seen other beautiful people in Genesis, and it always ends badly. For example, Sarah, the wife of Abraham, good-looking gal. Genesis, uh, I didn't even put these up here. I skipped this. Genesis 12, 11, and 14. When he was about to enter Egypt is Abraham. Interesting parallels, isn't it? Abraham's going to a type of exile, going into Egypt. And he said to Sarah, his wife, I know you are a woman beautiful in appearance. The same language used here to describe Joseph. And then verse 14, when Abraham entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful. Same language is here in Joseph. What happened? Bad things happened. So what happened? Genesis 29, Leah's eyes were weak. That is, she wasn't very attractive. Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance, the exact same language we get here of her, uh, that would be grandson, Joseph. And in both cases, bad things are coming. Now, they're different stories, but we're being set up something that is good. There's nothing wrong with it. They are good in appearance, is often used by others for their own purposes that are bad. People take what is good and they use it for, for evil. And that's what's going to happen with Genesis. Also remember, what is, what is the, the beginning of Eve's sin? She saw the fruit was delightful to the eyes. Same thing with Sarah, same thing with Rachel, and now Joseph. Potiphar's wife is going to find Joseph to be delightful to the eyes. He's handsome, Fabio in Egyptian robe. And that's going to create some problems. Well, let's look at his temptation um, I did have those up there. His temptation, uh, verses 7 to, to 10. Read them real quick. Um, 
And after a time, his master's wife, notice she's not named, cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He has put everything he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Notice to lie beside her. That's going to come back later in the narrative. Well, notice here that uh, it mentions eyes in verse 7. It's not an accident. Um, This is Joseph Garden of Eden moments. He has to choose. Will he choose the way of righteousness, the tree of life, or the tree of knowledge? Here is a serpent-like character saying that this is what is really good for you, right? And this is what Judah fell for. He saw a prostitute and he took for himself. What is Potiphar's wife wanting? She is wanting Joseph to take for himself. Later, she will try to take for herself. This is the Garden of Eve, Eden uh, moment. After all, Potiphar will never find out, they say. It's probably true. But Joseph refuses to give in. The word refuse there in verse eight, um, this is not used uh, until the actual Joseph story. This is not a word we've not seen a whole lot. First time, I think the only time this has been used, chapter 37, all his sons and all of his daughters, Jacob's sons and daughters, rose up to comfort Jacob. This is after they told Jacob, your boy's dead. He refused to be comforted. That same word is used here. It is an absolute refusal. Jacob, he, he is emotionally so spent and so hurt He refuses to be comforted. Now you have his son in a very different circumstances. He refuses to surrender to sin and temptation. It's a strong word given the various contexts. And his reasonings are good. Um, To violate the marriage is an insult to his master. His master has been good to him. Why would he be bad to his master, right? That's good. Um, He considers the needs and the reputations of others above himself, if only I can think of a good application of that, right? I mean, think about it. This is why selfishness is uh, the opposite of righteousness. At the root of sin is selfishness and idolatry. It is to say, I want this for me, and I do not care how this will affect other people, right? This is why you've heard me say that where there is sin, there is division. Where there is righteousness, there is unity, because sin, is, it will always ruin relationships. You care about yourself, you're gonna ruin everyone's life around you. But if, you, if, you, if your pursuit is the glory of God in righteousness, you're going to bring people around you that will love you and you can love them and it is a beautiful thing. Joseph rightly understands, why would I choose selfishness over the good of someone who's been good to me? That makes sense. But in the heat of the moment, we start convince ourselves, no one will find out. It's not that big of a deal. He wasn't treating her right anyways, right? She came on to me. It just happened, right? He could do all the, the, those games. But no, he says, I'm not going to do it. And again, contrast this with Joseph's brothers. They sowed him, declared him dead with little concern of how that is going to affect him, Joseph, or their father. They couldn't care less. They just wanted to get rid of him. Joseph isn't so heartless. Um, also notice that Joseph basically says, your husband has given me access to all the other trees except one. That language is taken right out of the garden. Is that 
remember that Adam and Eve said, uh, or God told Adam and Eve, you can have all access to all the trees except one. And what happens in human nature? When we are told no, that's where we wanna go, right? You've, you've heard me give this illustration. If we put 40 buttons over here somewhere, okay? And every one of them says, free to push. But one right in the middle said, do not push. Which one do you wanna push? You wanna see what happens, right? First time I came to East Frankfurt, went downstairs, saw his Sunday school rooms. There's a, there's a room down there. It says like, don't enter, right? Well, naturally I thought, what's going on in there? <laughs> right? Sunday school's going on. People learn about Jesus, don't care. What's going on in there, right? Is that where you put the heretics? I want to find out, right? You know, you know it's, 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 it's us naturally. Here's Joseph. He has access to all the trees, if you will. Has everything of, of, of his master's property. It's his, basically, except one thing. Will he choose the one thing he's been forbidden? Unfortunately, Joseph decides not. But I want you to notice also, he says that this is a sin ultimately against God. We've got to see it this way. David learned this the hard way. Think about it. David, saw a woman, and he lusted after her. It was delightful to his eyes. It's the repetition of the Eden story. He takes her. But when he confesses his sins in Psalm 51, he says, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, God, have I sinned. Well, what about Uriah, who's dead? What about Bathsheba, who's pregnant and loses a child? What about your kingdom? What about all these other people that you've affected? Those are true. Ultimately, all sin is rebellion against our maker. It's to say, I know better than he. And Joseph realizes, I think God knows better than I do. I mean, I like it. I'd love to sleep with my master's wife. You talk about a power move. But I think God knows better than me. That's why righteousness begins with humility. Well, she's relentless, verse 10, day after day after day after day. And notice that he says he refused to listen to her. You remember how uh, Adam listened to the voice of his wife? And you get that, that Lamech listened. Uh, he told his wives to listen to his voice. This is the bigamist, the violent man. Well, let's look at the end here. This is Joseph is now cursed in Egypt, right? He's been blessed. He's been tempted. And now he has been cursed. Well, Verse 11, one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him in his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand, fled and got out of the house. As soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to, to me to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. As soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. She laid up his garment by her until his master came. Let me, because I may forget it later. Notice her request was that Joseph would lay beside her. Joseph refused. When she takes the garment, she lays it beside her. That's just good writing, right? If you want to be a writer, Learn from the Bible. That's good writing, right? Um, she told the same story. Oh, this is verse 16. Uh, master comes home, verse 17. She told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant, whom you brought among us, right? It's your fault, Potiphar, came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house, right? This is the part of the story we remember the most. He continues to, to refuse, uh, but now she wants to force herself upon him. This is a type of sexual assault. Remember, we saw the story of Dinah, Jacob's daughter, who is assaulted by the Shechemites. 
Now we have Jacob's son who is nearly assaulted by an Egyptian. Right? We are to see these parallels. In fact, a lot that we find in the Dino story and the Joseph story is played out later in the Tamar story. Remember that Absalom in them is involved with that. A lot of parallels. Look, sexual sin is a human problem. It's not just a male problem. It's a human problem. Here you have a woman wanting to force herself onto a man. And notice that she is weaponizing her position to one who is beneath her socially. He's a slave. She's the master's wife. Right? This is a bad situation. And this is a story that's been written over and over and over again. Right now as we speak, this is happening in this city, in this state, in this country, in this world. Right now it's happening as we speak. It's a human problem. Well, I want to highlight this verse 12. Notice that she takes his garment, right? He, 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 he just runs out of it from his garment, right? You remember playing uh, like tag or something like that when you were a kid, right? You know, men, you remember those, those girls just couldn't stay off you during recess? What'd you do? It's, it's, it's uh, fall, so you're, you know, mom makes you wear a jacket out there. You could just fly out of that coat, right? And now, now you're just stuck with my jacket. <laughs> Joke's on you, zoom. That's what he does. But I want you to notice something. This is now the second time Joseph has been the victim of injustice and evil doing. And in both the cases, he is stripped of a rope. It's just incredible storytelling, isn't it? One is he's the victim of his brothers. Now he's the victim of his master's wife. One is a, a coat of many colors. The other is a plain garment. Now, this word garment can describe the clothes that a poor man would wear or a rich man would wear. But he is being stripped again. Now, remember, we're going to come to this. When he, he goes on the prisons, in our text, he goes on prison. When Pharaoh calls him out, do you remember one of the first things Pharaoh does? He clothes him in a royal robe. It's not an accident detail. And I've, I've already done this, so we can go ahead and skip to the Jesus part briefly, is this is exactly what happens to Jesus. He is robed only to be disrobed, to be stripped of that royal garment, to be hung on a cross. And he's the son of a man named Joseph, who, like Joseph, will go down into a pit, a tomb, right? Well, I just ruined the ending. So anyways, um, uh, there's your climax. Um, do, do a little bit of skipping. There's one thing uh, unique that I want us to look at in, in this, this passage. Well, uh, having been spurned for the final time, she, she rages. Notice verse 14, she, she calls the other slaves and she calls him the Hebrew. That is a word that is not a common word, really, uh, in terms of the Bible. You don't see it a whole lot. The reason is because Hebrew is the word that a Jew would use to speak to a Gentile and a Gentile would use to speak of a Jew. So Jews didn't call themselves Hebrews. What's up, my Hebrew brother, right? Rather, it's, it's to distinct, it's a racial distinction. I'm a Hebrew, you're a Gentile, you're Egyptian, you're Canaanite, Philistine, whatever. So I think there is racial overtones in this story because we can safely presume, I think, that the other slaves are Egyptians, more likely. They could be outside of that, they could be Canaanites or something, but they're probably Egyptians. Now, how do you think, given the racial over, uh, 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 language here, that she says, yeah, you know that Hebrew that my husband put above you? Look what he's done. So now it becomes not just an issue of sexual assault, but now, well, this is what Hebrews do. This is what they do. They just rape women. This is what they do. Doesn't this sound familiar? You'll notice she says Hebrew man with the slaves. When Potiphar shows up, she calls him a Hebrew slave. 
she continues to denigrate him. Now, she's not going to call him a Hebrew slave to denigrate slave among slaves. But she will with her husband. Has racial language with it. She is like Pharaoh in the story of the Exodus. Pharaoh fears the Hebrews. They're going to rise up against us. Potiphar's wife, I fear these Hebrews. They're going to rape all of the women. All right? This is racially charged language, and we do it all the time. Notice here, race has been a problem in human culture forever and ever because we are tribal and because we refuse to believe we're all made in the image of God. Don, are you going to say something? Do you think she's probably done this before with other slaves? I wouldn't doubt it. I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah. Yet this is the problem with power. It's a big problem with slavery. The history of slavery is those in power, the masters, take advantage of those uh, slaves, and often it is sexual. I mean, read Roman slavery. It is debauched. What, what was expected of slaves, particularly domestic slaves? Read the South. Um, uh, so with that, uh, pick up there in verse 19. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, notice he listened to the voice of his wife. It's his garden moment. Um, this is the way... Your servant treated me. His anger was kindled, and Joseph's master took him, put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love, gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. Whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. A couple things to note here. Um, when Potiphar finds out his anger is kindled, that is important language um, because that is the same language first used to describe Cain's anger against his brother Abel. And so what we're assuming then is Potiphar's going to choose violence. He ends up choosing imprisonment. Now, by Egyptian law, he has the right to execute his slave. This is an egregious crime. A slave, particularly a non-Egyptian slave, to try to rape his master's wife, that is a capital offense and has been throughout history. Right. Another reason why slavery is just absolutely evil. But he decides to imprison him. Um, now, this is an act of providential grace. Doesn't look like it. I don't want to go to prison. I don't care what prison it is. Don't want to go. Right? So on the surface, it's like, this is an act of injustice. Why didn't God keep it from happening? Now, that's the question we're always asking. Remember, the text is to say, don't confuse your difficult moments of life with God's unfaithfulness. Don't blame God to be unfaithful in those moments. Rather, the, the writer is saying, look, God is still faithfully on his throne, working in and through Joseph. The experience he gets through Potiphar is important. The temptations he faced with Potiphar and his wife are important to what God is going to do for him later. Joseph has one job, be faithful. Wherever he's at, be faithful. Now he's in prison. What's Joseph going to do? He's going to be faithful. No one wants to be in prison. He's later going to be forgotten while in prison. No one wants that. He has one job, be faithful. And God's faithfulness is, is proven in the end. Well, uh, you'll notice there in verse 20, prison is repeated three times. Um, one interesting thing, this, this may be a neat little note. Prisons are not common in the ancient Near Eastern world. They're not. You didn't have prisons, except really in one place. Egypt. 
If you ever want to do a deep dive on the Bible, one of the things you could do with the Exodus story, Joseph and the Moses story, is there's a lot of weird things in it that are clear. Whoever wrote it, I think Moses was the main writer, whoever wrote it clearly understood Egyptian culture. There are words used that are clearly Egyptian. There are customs used that are clearly so if this was written, a lot of people say the stories of Genesis and Exodus and all that were written during the Babylonian captivity, hundreds of years later. The problem is, is that those nuances of culture are lost after hundreds of years. My family are Scot-Irish. If I were to write the story of my ancestors, just make it up, say from the 1500s, I would get a lot of cultural things wrong because I wasn't there. I don't understand the nuances of that. The Bible seems to do, to understand it. He's not in prison in Canaan. He's in prison in Egypt. Why? They're everywhere in Egypt. They imprisoned people. We have countless evidence of this, right? That's just a neat little footnote for, I think, the reliability of, of the Bible. Um, by the way, Psalms comes in here and talks about this story. When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, referencing the Joseph story, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave, his feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. That's the guy God chose. God sent him ahead of the Israelites to suffer so that his, his, uh, his fellow brothers wouldn't. If only I could think of a connection to Jesus. They, they, so God sent his son. For he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Christ suffered in our behalf so that we wouldn't have to. So Joseph goes into a pit and he suffers. So all his brothers have to do is come be with Joseph. I, I mean, it's just so cool. It's, it's almost like the Bible is written by God. Um, well, the, the, the text wants us to see God is with him. And even in prison, he is elevated. So the main guard of the prison is like Potiphar. He trusts Joseph um, implicitly, just lets him do whatever it is he wants to do. He trusts him. What does that say about Joseph? He is driven by his righteousness and his faithfulness, not by his circumstances, not by his entitlements, and not by his victimization. God is still in control. I may not see it. I may not be able to rationalize it, but I believe it. Wherever God sends me, there I will, I will work faithfully for him, whether I'm in the palace with Pharaoh or I'm in the pit with the other prisoners. And this reminds me of what Jesus says, uh, which I didn't put it up there for some reason. Luke 16, 10, one who's faithful in a very little, let's say in charge of the other prisoners, is also faithful in much. Let's say, seeing to it that half the world is fed during the famine. Well, I want to make just a few final points. I've already ruined the Jesus stuff. I don't have much more else to say about Jesus. But there is one thing. Give me a little extra time, okay? I want to show you something you've probably never heard at church, okay? I do like to do that every once in a while just to spice it up, okay? Uh, two things. Number one, to use the word polemics. It's a fancy word. It's not a long word. It's a fancy word. Now, I want to be clear. I believe the Bible is true, and it is telling the true account of historical events, Okay? With that said, the biblical writers have an agenda. They're trying to convince you of something. For example, 
If you read 1st and 2nd Chronicles, it parallels the stories of 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings. Why do we need a repetition of that? Well, 1st, 2nd Chronicles is probably the last books written of the Old Testament chronologically. And it's written as people are coming out of uh, captivity and it softens the story of Israel, the monarchy, so that the reader can say, look, there were bad things. It wasn't all bad. Let me show you in the history of Israel, God's faithfulness to us. So for example, you can, uh, I may be wrong in this. You're not gonna get the story of David and Bathsheba in Chronicles. You're not gonna get it. What you're gonna get is David's victories in battle. Solomon building the temple and consecrating it. And a lot of that is verbatim, word for word. What we're reading in 1 Kings 8, you're gonna get in 1 Chronicles, I think it's chapter 22, something like that, okay? Clearly the writer has an agenda. It's a good agenda. I think the writer of Judges has an agenda against King Saul. It ends with the Benjaminites calling civil war. What's the first story you get in Samuel? A Benjaminite becomes king. Guess what? He divides the, the, the country, basically. I think there's an agenda there. An agenda doesn't mean that it is inaccurate or anything else. It is, it is written with a purpose. And I believe these stories are written polemically. What that means is, is it is written in ancient Near Eastern culture They're trying to tell the reader, the Gentiles, something about their God, Yahweh. And we can do this. We we, we can uncover uh, culture of Egypt and Canaan and all that. And we see parallels between the Bible and their culture, their stories and the biblical stories. And we can highlight the similarities. We can highlight differences. And through them all, we see that the Bible is at times mocking the, uh, the pagan gods. Can I give you just an example of this? Just a fun one, okay? In Exodus, you get this phrase, the arm of God, the strong arm of God. Let me give you a few examples. Um, I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand, right? You see that? Who, who's, who's got the mighty hand there? Yahweh. So what are, what, are, what are the plagues? God's mighty strong arm, okay? Give you another one. Uh, Exodus 6, 1, the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh for with a strong hand, Right? I'm, I'm, I'm going to whoop up on them. I'm going to do my thing. Chapter seven, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt. There it is. Strong arm of Yahweh. Uh, one more, Exodus 15. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. This is Miriam's psalm after the part of the, of the Sea of Reeds. Okay, so you see, well, what's the big deal with God's strong arm? Does God have an actual arm? you know, with, with, uh, uh, with bones in the wrist and, you know, muscles. Does he have a bicep? No, that's not the point. If you read Egyptian literature, Pharaoh's power was described as his mighty arm. So what is the writer of Exodus doing? Oh, you thought Pharaoh had a strong arm. <laughs> Let me introduce you to my God. My God can part the waters. He can turn off the sun. He can send plague after plague and he will deliver slaves from the mighty hand of Pharaoh who's got weak arms without firing an arrow. You see the polemic? Now, it's true theologically. God has a mighty strong arm, if you will, but there's a polemic there. He's trying to make a point. Let me give you one more example. When Elijah shows up, he just pops up out of nowhere. What does he say? Y'all a bunch of pagans worshiping Baal or Baal. What is the God, Baal, Baal? He's the God of the storm, water. 
rain. What is the punishment Elijah brings to Israel? Drought. <laughs> you see the polemic? Oh, oh, you, you thought this guy is going to water your crops. Let me show you what my God can do, right? So, so now look, when Elijah goes up to Mount Carmel, what does he do? He gets what little water is left and he soaks the sacrifice. Look, he's not just the one that can turn off the water. He can light it on fire, right? It's all caught on fire from heaven. And later he sees the cloud in the distance. He's like, oh man, I gotta go. The rains are coming. And it's God, not Baal, that turns on the water. See the polemic? Yeah. Yes, that's right. That's right. It's the strong arm of Pharaoh, right? You know? We, say, we have something like that with Joseph. Historians, archaeologists, and all that have found a story. You can look this up. I have a whole book on this. I've got it over here. It's a fascinating book. It does Joseph and Exodus and other stories. The book, the story, it's a short story called The Tale of the Two Brothers. Let me give you the similarities of the story, right? And not everything parallels, but some of it is. One, there are two brothers in the story. The Egyptian story is Anubis and Bada. Both are names of Egyptian gods. One brother is accused of adultery. That is, Bada is accused of sexually attacking his brother's wife, okay? Thirdly, the husband believes the wife's story. So the wife lies about it. She accuses an innocent man wrongly, and then the husband listens to the voice of his wife. And finally, the husband punishes the accused. In the Egyptian story, Anubis exiles Bada and the, and, and from the rest of the family. Now, that's in Egypt. If you read the Gilgamesh epic and other accounts, you'll see a similar story in all those cultures. Now, clearly, this is a folklore in the way it's written, okay? There are some differences. One in the Egyptian story, when the truth is discovered, when Anubis, the husband, discovers his wife lied, he uh, ends up executing his wife. We have no idea if Potiphar ever discovers the truth. And if so, what did he do with his wife? We don't know. It's not there. And one of the things you'll find is in the Egyptian accounts and the Canaanite accounts is they are very uh, mythical, right? So you have two brothers named after the gods and, and, then, and then it gets really weird after that, okay? Out of this come cities and towns and all, all sort of stuff. But a lot of scholars have come and they said, look, you read the Bible and all it is is they're just borrowing stories from the cultures around them and putting a Hebrew flavor with it. You've probably heard this before. When the Bible's criticized, it just takes uh, other stories and, and they just change the details and it makes it their own. I don't think that's the case. There are similarities, yes, there are differences. I think what we have here is the writer saying, I'm well aware of the story. But something like that did happen. And God used it to preserve his people. So um, we can look at other stories of the spurn seductress, as we said. But in all of those stories, the gods are engaging in human affairs and they are portrayed as equally unrighteous. If you ever read the, the Greek and the Roman myths, the gods are just filthy. I mean, they're incestuous, they rape, they torture, they destroy. They're, they're, they're worse than the humans. And you get this in these sort of uh, stories, these uh, um, um, spurned seductress. 
and they are clearly written as myth and folklore, but the Bible comes along and tells a better story. This story lacks all the myth and the folklore legends in it. It's a guy who is in a, who has a real name. He works for a real person who is named in a real uh, country that is named. And what is told in those myths seem to have happened in his story for real. But what we are to see is not that God is engaging in the immoral activity. He stands above it and triumphs over it, which means that God is Lord over everything, including injustice, acts of violence, and evil. That's a better story than what the Egyptians can give us. We can see the parallels, and that's on purpose. But what sets God apart is he is He is above the unrighteousness and he is eternally good. And he will take the evil of humanity and turn it into his greater glory so that through Joseph's suffering, a people will be delivered. Here is where we make the connection to Jesus. Jesus, his cross is the climax of human evil. And we will look at the cross and say, if that is the Messiah, God has truly abandoned him. In fact, isn't that what Jesus said? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And on one hand, we can look at such evil and suffering and say, God has clearly abandoned his people. Yet, even through the cross, we see that God is delivering his people, much like the story of Joseph. Now, Jesus will suffer and go into a pit like Joseph will suffer and go into a pit. Both will go into exile only to be exalted and be put in a position of prominence to sit at the right hand of the throne of the king. And through his work, he will give food and water to all who come, for he is the bread of life. Am I talking about Joseph or am I talking about Jesus? It's both. It's both. And they will borrow from Egyptian literature to make the point more powerful. Isn't the Bible incredible? It's almost as if it was written by God. So what's the big point of this passage? I know we're late. Is do not judge God's faithfulness by your circumstances. Things could be going great in your life and God is no more faithful to us in those moments than he is when things are going terrible. Whether we are in exile or whether we are exalted, God remains faithful. We just have to believe it. All right. I know Danny's not here, so he can't tell me what I've missed. But anything else? It's a good story, isn't it? Man, it's a good story. All right. How about we pray and be dismissed? Mark, you close us in prayer?